Hallo, mein Name ist Christiane Wirz. Ich bin Coach und Autorin aus Köln und weiß, wie sich etwas aus Krisen machen lässt. Herzlich willkommen. Heute bin ich sehr aufgeregt und ich freue mich furchtbar. Und ich fühle mich tatsächlich geehrt. Das ist jetzt echt kein Spruch, weil... Unser heutiger Podcast-Gast, der Podcast wird auch auf Englisch sein, ist der niederländische Professor für, ich sage es auf Englisch gleich, Professor of Psychiatric Epidemiology and Public Mental Health am Utrecht University Medical Center. Professor Jim van Oos. Und äh, Jim van Oos ist nicht nur ein fantastischer Wissenschaftler, sondern auch jemand, der durchaus mal etwas sagt, äh, was, ähm, naja, was man heute sagen würde, was disruptiv ist. Wir sprechen jetzt eben gleich auf Englisch und ähm, Professor Van Oss ist auch äh, TED-Speaker gewesen mit seinen Thesen und es ist natürlich auch irgendwie Wasser auf meine Mühlen, denn es geht um äh, Mental Health, äh, ist ganz klar. Aber es geht um ein ganz spezielles Konzept, nämlich die Schizophrenie. Und jetzt auf Englisch. Welcome, Professor Oz. I'm really, um, uh, Van Oz, I'm really delighted that you're here and honored by that. And um, you speak words that uh, do me good. Um, you challenge the concept of uh, schizophrenia and uh, you have good reasons for that. What are these reasons and why do you um, think that it has to uh, rethought? Well, first, Christiane, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very happy to be in your podcast. You're an established author and your name is very well known in the Netherlands as well as a, as a force of uh, empowerment and uh, experience that we need. So... Uh, with regard to your question, I think this is, the, I, I, like, I like the debate about schizophrenia because it lays bare the core issue of why psychiatry is so culturally biased and in many regards uh, unscientific and unwilling to set things straight. So schizophrenia uh, is, is sort of core of psychiatry. It's the flagship diagnosis. It is the diagnosis we thought would help us discover the biology of mental illness and would lead to medical fixes and great prestige for our profession. And the interesting thing is that with progress in science and epidemiology, but also with the narratives of people with lived experience, we have actually discovered that this notion of schizophrenia is scientifically not valid. What we have seen is that, uh, if you like, mental variation can take on many, many different forms and shapes. You can feel anxious or you can have low mood or you can attribute significance to the environment in a special way. These are all core human mental processes and you know with anxiety that's quite clear if you say I, I you know I've got an anxiety problem people will know oh his anxiety is my anxiety I know where you're coming from and then sometimes you know the way we attribute meaning to the environment like if things are threatening uh, or if our mental 
processes are, are strange to us, you know, these, these can have forms that we say, you know, I feel there's too many red cars around me in the street. I feel very threatened by the presence of, you know, red cars and why are they following me, etc. These are core human mental processes. And what we have done, what we have done for this type of mental variation, we have invented a word that is sort of a Greek word, meaning split mind, that's got nothing to do with the mental experience itself. It doesn't help explain why this is a core human mental process that everybody can have to a degree, so that nobody can compare it to his or her own mental process. So you, you alienate, you make people strange in the, in the eyes of other people, ununderstandable. So that was a, was a core mistake, I think. Call people something that nobody understands and is basically not more than a complicated Greek word. Uh, but then the second thing is that, that you know, uh, psychosis really is about uh, altered attributional, you know, processes or, or, or uh, attributing meaning to the environment in a way that other people don't understand. Um, uh, there's many forms of psychosis. And it's really a spectrum of experiences. And it's a spectrum that you can also pick up in a general population. It's a bit like anxiety and depression and autism. We now, we now accept that these are expressions on a spectrum of mental experience that you can measure in the general population as well as in people who have difficulties with these experiences. And we call them patients. But psychosis is the same thing. Psychosis is a core human mental variation of attributing meaning to the environment that sometimes people that, that sometimes is highly idiosyncratic, so that other people do not exactly understand what you mean. Um, but it's 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 a core human psychological process. And what we have done is we have elevated a normal spectrum of human variation to a illness that we call a complicated Greek word and that has become associated with brain disease, poor prognosis, ununderstandable, dangerous and above all requiring lifelong medical treatment with antipsychotics. And this is very strange because if you look at it scientifically, we do not only have schizophrenia, because we have also invented schizophrenia, schizophreniform disorder, schizoaffective disorder, schizoid personality disorder, schizotypal personality disorder, delusional disorder, psychosis not otherwise specified. We've, we've identified 13 different diagnoses of psychotic variation, but the only thing we ever talk about is schizophrenia. But then if you look at it, what happens in clinical practice, we see that only about a third of patients who have something with psychosis, only a third gets the label of schizophrenia. And the other 70% get other diagnoses like schizoaffective or schizophreniform or delusional or whatever. But we have reserved schizophrenia for the group with a relatively poor prognosis compared to the other 70%. But what has happened is that 
since we only talk about schizophrenia, 95% of our research is about schizophrenia, not about the other 70% with milder forms of psychosis. So the whole of psychosis spectrum has become associated with this poor outcome, uh, brain-based, antipsychotic requiring illness. So the word, the, the experience of psychosis has become contaminated with a very pessimistic biological notion of mental illness, which is scientifically clearly wrong, because we've done 50 years of intensive biological research. 50 years. We've done neuroimaging. We've done hormonal examinations. We've done electrophysiological examinations. We've done genetic examinations of schizophrenia and, and the spectrum of psychosis. And we have found absolutely nothing. Um, and that's, that's the really interesting thing scientifically. The scientific most important finding with regard to tying the diagnosis of schizophrenia to biology has been that we have no clinical useful correlation with any measure of biology. So, for example, a good example is genetics. Let's, let's take genetics. We've, so what happens if you compare uh, you know, 500,000 controls with 200,000 patients and you compare, say, 7 million pieces of genetic variation between these two groups. What we have found is we have signals. We have signals. We have found signals. We found genetic signals that are more common in the patient group compared to the control group. But, here's the big but, uh, there are literally thousands of genetic differences between patients and controls, but they are tiny. They are minute. And the really interesting thing is that the contrast is not very impressive because most virtually, well, everybody, every human being has hundreds to thousands of these genetic variants. So the, we have found that there is a genetic contribution to the liability of psychosis, but... Every human being has it. We all have genetic liability for psychosis. And this is logical because psychosis is the faculty of attributing meaning to the environment, which is to a small degree genetically uh, influenced. So the liability for psychosis is to 20%, 25% has a genetic influence. Well, big deal, you know. Every human characteristic has a genetic contribution. But the most important thing is that all human beings, that's the most important biological finding, is that we all have genetic liability for schizophrenia. Schizophrenia, therefore, is the human condition, is part of the human condition. Psychosis is part of the human condition. That, that is the real scientific finding. So then... If, if I may go on, because what is interesting then, if we, if we don't have biological findings that you can really tie uh, in a clinical, useful manner to uh, people with, with psychotic experiences, what does that mean? And we, we are starting to think scientifically that the hypothesis that our mental variation is 
somehow uh, embedded in our biology, perhaps is a bad hypothesis. Uh, you know, because when you come to think of it, why would my preference for the color yellow over the color red be genetically determined? Or why would me falling in love with person A but not person B, why, why, would, why would that sort of mental preference be genetically determined? Why would that be a good hypothesis? So the hypothesis that each and every thought and feeling and attribution of the environment is embedded in our biology, maybe that's a very bad hypothesis. Uh, because you can also, for example, think, well, if I am sad, if I have a core emotion of sadness, of course, I, I then maybe I will see the environment differently and I will see more threat in the environment. Uh, so... What I mean to say is one mental phenomenon, like a feeling, can cause another mental phenomenon, namely how you perceive the environment. And that can cause, in turn, cause another mental phenomenon, namely that you start to feel threatened by another person that you see nearby, or that you think something special of red cars. So there may be part of the mental variation that we see in humans is part of a chain of mental events, one mental event causing another mental event. And the interesting thing of mentality of mental events is that they're not material. You can't measure them under the microscope. Uh, they're immaterial. They're not in the physical domain. So it looks nice saying mental illness is a brain disease, but when you come to think of it, it's infinitely more complicated, really. Um, so the whole idea is unscientific. And then you come also to the question, then, well, okay, why, why would we tell people they've got a brain disease then? And, and why would we tell them to take antipsychotics for the rest of their lives? What, what, what is the science behind that? Yeah, I, um, I thank you very much for this concept, for this new uh, concept that you developed since 15 years nearly, no? More or less, step mm -hmm. by step. Yeah. Um, I don't know if, if I'm allowed to say that, but um, my impression is that, um, of course, there are biological aspects as well as uh, genetic aspects, as well as, I don't know, whatever, uh, uh, lifestyle aspects and, and nutrition aspects and, and all these things. But maybe, anyway, the future of psychiatry could be consciousness. Consciousness. How yeah. to develop yeah. mastery of of your mind and also integrate your feelings. I mean, like not yep. thinking that you have to be a robot or uh, artificial uh, intelligence or whatever, but to mm -hmm. integrate these things and to make research on consciousness. I just wanted to, because I'm in, in, uh, in talks with, uh, also with people as well as with shamans, or shamans, or I don't know how you say that in English, mm, as mm. with people who um, uh, try to bring this uh, uh, psychedelics um, experiences into the discussion. Um, what do you mm -hmm. think about these, yep. let's say, new approaches to mental and consciousness topics? Yep. So I think this, this is very important. Um, Because it represents a fundamental change. So uh, to date, 
Uh, well, what everybody agrees on is that if you look at the mind and the brain, that they have a relationship, but the relationship is conditional uh, in the sense that uh, there may be two parts of the same thing. That, that's, that's called the identity theory. But everybody intuits that they have something. But the brain may be conditional for mind activity. But that's what psychiatry is saying is that the brain causes the mind. So each and every aspect of the mind uh, is caused by brain activity, but that's entirely different. And it doesn't leave room for a science of the mental, a science of mental activity by itself. But I think now what we're saying is uh, the implicit model of, of psychiatry is, well, uh, people are their brain. Therefore, a person with schizophrenia is his sick brain. He gets identified with the sick brain. I think we're now saying, no, we need, a, we need also a science of the mental. And consciousness is really saying we are going to take serious the fact that we do not understand the exact relationship between brain and mind. Therefore, we need also, we need to empower the science of the mind uh, as something of itself. And a science of the mental then becomes very interesting because we know that uh, if, you, if you take that seriously, that people will tell you literally uh, what other cultures have been studying for a long time, that many aspects of learning to live with mental variation uh, and mental problems is like learning how to, as it were, make a transcendent leap Pass your immediate mental experience and be able to look at it from a little bit of a distance, uh, which sometimes you can do with the aid of uh, transcendental meditation or taking uh, 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 ayahuasca type of, of psychedelics. Um, but I think that's very, very interesting because many people will tell you that what they've learned in dealing with mental problems is not, uh, you know, they, they go through a phase that they call it an illness and that they take medication and that they learn to view it as a medical problem. And then they decide, no, let's do something else. And uh, let's not talk about it and see it cognitively as a disease, but try to examine it from the mental. So, for example, they go to explore uh, bodily experiences. They do uh, bodily therapies or they do psychedelic therapies or they try to reach transcendental mental states that allow them to explore their own minds from a distance, make journeys. Uh, very interesting. And then they come back and without us knowing exactly what has happened, they are able to take a different perspective on their suffering on their mental experiences in a way that makes, makes life bearable and that also allows them to see a future again. So I think consciousness, like the hard problem of consciousness, like Chalmer called it in 1995, that we still haven't solved, I think the hard problem of consciousness should not be ignored anymore in psychiatry. We should embrace it and make it part of our practice and also then empower ourselves to also create a science of the mind without treating the mind as a sort of byproduct of the biological brain. 
that hasn't any interest in itself apart from seeing it as symptoms. So if we take the mind seriously and consciousness seriously, transcendental consciousness seriously, and how people are are able to create perspectives in their mind that can be helpful, not cognitively, but through exploration of bodily experiences, psychedelic experiences, etc. And that's what we see coming. So that's good. But there's also a, a less less desirable thing, and that is that pharmaceutical industries now start promoting things like ketamine as the next depression treatment. But in a way that I think is very dangerous, because psychedelics like ketamine can also have very important side effects. You know, if you if you want to play around with psychedelics, that's fine. But just calling it a treatment for depression and say uh, it's safe to use without exploring the side effects, because there have been suicides in these trials and the trial methodology. So you get another sort of pharmaceutical boom uh, within the old medical model of psychiatry using these medications and I, I don't think that that's not a good idea if you use them you should use them in a new model of psychiatry um i i want to add two things the, the one thing is that um these moments that you can watch yourself or you uh, can um, take a different perspective this actually happened to me when i was uh, in the psychiatric clinic in 2016 Because then I thought, oh my gosh, what did you do with your gifts until now? I mean, this was not a very critical voice, let's say, in myself. But mm -hmm. this was this was something like, come on, girl, you know, do something. You should, you shouldn't, you know, cry the whole life through what was not okay in your life. Or was maybe you should, I mean, I, I have cried about that. Okay. So, but maybe this should be yeah. enough now and I should start now to do something. And, um, this was a little bit like a spiritual moment, if you want to say so. And my, my personal approach to psychedelics is I had a, an experience, but I thought this is not my way. I mean, this is not, if, for example, you're coming from Peru or I don't know wherever and you're using ayahuasca or, or Whoever wants to do that, it's fine, but it's not my way because I thought I want to master these things. I want to master the borders between the one thing and the other one. I want to master mm -hmm. the transitions and then I don't have a psychosis anyway because if I'm grounded in myself, I, I don't want to say grounded like I eat something or I have a lot of money and I mean, this contributes to that, mm -hmm. but, but if I'm centered in myself, uh, in my body, and um, I could have crazy thoughts. These crazy thoughts can contribute to my uh, everyday life, of course. You know, they, have, they yep. are these different perspectives. They are these uh, ideas that come. I just have to master that. I have to focus a little bit. I have to master yep. that. That was just, I thought, what I have to do. And uh, let's say step by step, because more or less I'm living 15 years with uh, uh, psychotropics and stuff. So I should, you know, slow down a little bit with uh, uh, and not um, throwing them away in, in the deepest crisis. But um, 
this was my conclusion after that happened. And um, hmm. yeah, but not everybody wants to believe me. <laughs> okay, this is uh, this is uh, yeah. and not it's, yeah. it's also not it's not the, the solution yeah. for everybody, of course. But I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but that that's why your your story is so, I think, so interesting and powerful because that is what if you analyze the stories of people with lived experience and how they've come to cope with whatever variation uh, and diversity they had, uh, is is what you describe. They describe what, what is called turning points. Turning points are, are like what you described, that someday, often they, they have the, the form of, you know, I was in a psychiatric hospital, I was cutting myself for five years, I had negative voices, Until I met somebody who said dot, 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 dot. And then uh, they describe a change in perspective, a turning point, often of a spiritual character, of a, of a deeply felt invasive character that was contributing to change. And the thing is that the turning points are, are not linear and you can't exactly create them when you want to. It, it is the end point of very hard work and, and much suffering. But they are described in synthesis of the narratives of people with lived experience. That these turning points are very powerful. And what also is very powerful is, is the way people experience their mind as, as out of balance uh, and trying to find a balance. So, so, and this is also very interesting because uh, our mind is is constantly fluctuating between the positive, the negative, and the wake, the, the alertness, and and the sleepiness. And we know that mental, the experience of mental suffering is probably when when there's lack of balance, like that that the negative is is so disproportional to the positive that the usual sense of balance is gone. And what people describe, like you have described, is, well, why why can't these two then be brought in balance again alongside each other? Like, you know, the craziness or the, or the negativeness or, or the self-hate or whatever it is people suffer with. Why, why can't we still have that but more comportmentalized or uh, integrated in a way that um, I can still continue to see a future and live my life? And maybe even have something powerful deriving from it uh, that helps me in daily life and help other people. So why, why not? Why not uh, listen to these stories uh, and then try to work with each other along these along these lines? And that is, in fact, what now people with lived experience they're now working increasingly in the mental health service. Indeed, they they are transforming the mental health service to such a degree that in the Netherlands, my country, we see. A sort of a, a parallel mental health service of recovery colleges run by people with lived experience, uh, but not in the health service, but in the social care service. And they don't work with diagnoses. They work with an educational model. They say, once you've been in a mental crisis, you need a, an education, a training. And we have a college where you are told literally, how to find your balance again and how to get perspective again and make sense of your life and see your future. And these are very popular places. And the interesting thing is now is, is 
is this the way it should be? Like you have a formal mental health service that works with diagnoses and medications, and then you have a, another mental health service that works with an, a lived experience educational model of mental problems. I think we should integrate with each other so that we should listen more to the, the narratives and other ways of working. But we can still, you know, if people want to try molecules, we can say, well, we've got a bunch of molecules you can try. You know, some people have benefit with medication, uh, although you shouldn't, you probably not use them for a long time. Uh, they can help you, you know, sometimes get a change in perspective as well. Uh, or you can use, you know, uh, uh, other areas of therapy that we have some experience in. But then we have a different model of working. We, we are serving the educational model rather than determining, rather than being the power structure of, of defining that, that, that is defining what mental variation is and call it illness and draw people into a biological model that in the end will disempower them rather than help them. You talked about the Netherlands. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, the developments in other countries, like in the United States, which is might be important <laughs> as a, a yes. whatever? And uh, But what about other approaches from other countries outside the, the European Union? Yeah, yeah. so, um, well... So I think the United States is a very interesting country because in the United States you always see everything that is extremely underdeveloped and everything that is extremely overdeveloped. So in terms of new models of mental health care, uh, there are very, very interesting experiments taking place in the United States. Uh, for example, you have communities in the United States uh, paid for by... Uh, Medicare-type structures of people with lived experience taking care of other people with, with mental problems and uh, not just, you know, helping people uh, to deal with the problems but also for housing, education, work. Um, and the interesting thing of the United States is, is that the country where people with the history of mental illness work the most is the United States. Uh, whereas in Europe... Once you've had a mental crisis, you're out. It's very difficult to get in again. Uh, but not in the United States. That's the interesting thing. Our welfare system is wonderful, but it also brings a, a number of problems. Um, so that, uh, But the United States, of course, is also the country where, it, where, where academic psychiatry, where the pillar of academic psychiatry is the, is the brain causes mind model of mental illness. Uh, a very conservative psychiatrists who say, well, all this, this recovery movement is a hoax. You, you can say that as an academic psychiatrist in the U.S., you can just say it's a hoax. And really, we are, we are the boss and we help people. Um, so it's that what I find interesting about the United States. Uh, the, the United, uh, in general, you see the psychiatric, uh, but also the psychological profession struggling with, you know, what is coming next. More than the rest of medicine, but you could say it applies to the whole of medicine. The whole of medicine is, is you know, very much a sort of very much a medical profession that is trying to change medical outcomes, but is not trying to impact people's lives. They, they're worried about their own technical outcomes rather than helping people. But psychiatry and psychology, because psychologists have become very medical in their outlook, 
they, they've become even more brain-based than the psychiatrist. They are struggling with what is next. And I think the newer generation of psychiatrists and psychologists are much more flexible, I think, in accepting mental variation as such. They see the science that all these diagnoses are not very helpful because they overlap and they change. And they're more comfortable in talking to people, being flexible, adaptive, working alongside people with lived experience and embracing human diversity as a model of psychiatry. Um, so I'm very hopeful that, that say, uh, you know, uh, the older generation like myself the, the, the are, are sort of gradually die out and will be replaced by a younger, much more flexible generation. Um, what, what I find very helpful with the U.S. Uh, view is um, this, this general mentality of, um, okay, you, you fell, uh, you can have my hand and um, because tomorrow you can be some, something, somebody else. So this here in Europe, or maybe at least in Germany, is a little bit like, oh my God. I mean, like, okay, I had that. Okay, and I'm also working with that, and I'm interested in that. I think it's it's a very interesting phenomenon. It's a, it's a phenomenon that, for example, hmm. during this, in this time, right now, it's one of the most helpful. If you're really getting close and 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 near, and and really see all the the parts of the puzzle, if you see all the parts of the puzzle, it's a clue to what's happening right now. Uh, these changing world. I mean, like uh, you have phenomenons like people, people with uh, uh, um, who feel um, who are regarded as not ill and who are paranoid, or you have people who are completely afraid and afraid and afraid, mm -hmm. and you just can't console them right now. And um, and also it's affecting science. I mean, like in, in in this respect regarding Corona, you see the same. You see, they're not there. There is sometimes. A lack of objectivity. I mean, like not maybe in in what's what's happening in the numbers, but a lack of objectivity mm -hmm. in what to do and how to interpret them. And you have a, a problem between in this range of people interp interpreting uh, them differently. And they are very. Uh, it reminds me of the Dreißigjährige uh, Krieg. Uh, mm -hmm. They are very. They're not tolerant. Yeah, and they don't want yeah. to work to to work with each other. Yeah. you know. So uh, that that yeah, I think that uh, that's spot on. Uh, uh, um, so I think, but and in psychiatry, it's it's probably uh, even more potent because uh, we don't understand the brain mind relationship. There's so much we do not know, and if there's a lot of uh, not knowing, then what you do is you you create a culture to fill the gap of what you don't know. And culture means that you're very much attached to it. So uh, you fill the gaps where you don't know things. You tell people a story. This is how it really is. The brain causes the mind and there's illness and there's mental illness and brain-based illnesses. And then you get very attached to that culture, which then impedes you to work uh, with other people who have alternative models or new scientific developments because you have this cultural bias that you pretend is a scientific reality. Mm, yes. But on the other hand, I feel that maybe this corona thing helps people with uh, mental health, uh, whatever issues, to be accepted because I think that 
more or less everybody in the lockdown times they really suffered not being with with their friends with their family mm. not going out not mm. having the possibility to go out no work no you know being completely um yeah. um with yeah. themselves more or less sometimes um yes certainly that that's that's, that's what we hear here as well a lot of people feel that you're in the same boat you get a feeling like we're all in the same boat and and, and it's connecting everybody and that can be helpful indeed Mm-hmm. So, uh, Jim, do you want to? Um, usually, I'm ending this podcast with uh, a good advice from from the one uh, that I'm um, that was my guest. Uh, usually, the the podcast is about a story of a personal story, but this is a special podcast uh, uh, this time. But uh, maybe you have a good advice for let's put it in general for people with mm-hmm. um, mental health issues whatever or let's say psychosis issues what so um, what would you advise them well we we have this website called uh, psychosis.nl and we have a lot of people coming there and they they ask questions they can ask a, a panel of 20 people questions and i get like 10 questions a day and i find that that one of the most important things i think to to help people And what we try to convey on the website is to tell people, you know, see yourself as a human being with mental variation that is telling you something. See see it as something that has meaning that you can talk about to other people, find the meaning and work with that Meaning, although it can be very hard and very difficult, but don't think it is just a symptom of a brain disease because once you do that, you're in a sort of a hopeless situation because that means somebody else with knowledge about the brain you don't have is supposed to come and fix you. But we know from decades and decades of research that that is not how it works. It works like you... Take ownership of your mental variation. You don't, you don't get distracted by all these diagnoses and models. Uh, do something with it and let yourself be advised by other people who've been there and know what they talk about when they have lived experience and do the work. And sure, you can try molecules and you can try psychotherapy and you can try meditation. Uh, try to find what works for you. And there's a lot of things you can do. And I think, you know, that usually helps people get a get a more workable model of recovery than the ones they usually get in when they meet mental health professionals and diagnosis-based systems. So thank you very much, Jim van Oost. Um, I was really glad for this very interesting conversation. I, I will switch to German to finish this podcast. Um, Vielen herzlichen Dank, Tim von Ost, dass Sie hier Gast bei dem Podcast waren. Das ist jetzt ein Spezialpodcast dieses Mal. Es ging jetzt diesmal nicht um Jims Geschichte, sondern um Jims Wissen. Und in der nächsten Woche, in den nächsten zwei Wochen sehen wir uns, Entschuldigung, in den nächsten zwei Wochen sehen wir uns wieder mit einer Podcast-Folge, die wieder so ein bisschen breiter gestreut sein wird vom Thema her. Also wir 
beschäftigen uns ja nicht immer mit dem Thema Psychose und Schizophrenie, aber es war einfach so eine tolle Gelegenheit, Jim van Ost zu interviewen und ich hoffe, es hat euch auch gefallen, es interessiert euch und es interessiert hoffentlich auch die, die mit Psychosen eigentlich nicht so ganz was zu tun haben, denn das ist wirklich interessant und äh, wie gesagt, wir sehen uns in zwei Wochen. Ich bedanke mich bei euch und äh, freue mich, euch dann eben wieder mit euch in Kontakt zu sein. Bis dann. Tschüss.